drug companies don't want their drug being associated with, oh, and we are the drug that is used to put people to death. Ask your doctor for a prescription, right? Hello, and welcome to the Miami Law Explainer, the new podcast from the University of Miami School of Law. At The Explainer, we take a deep dive into the news of the day, unpacking Supreme Court cases and decisions, sussing out hot political and social issues, and discussing legal matters that are just too interesting to ignore. I'm your host, Annette Uges. The use of fentanyl in a Nebraska execution and the Catholic Church's recent stand on capital punishment has stirred the debate over the ways states execute the condemned. Last month, Nebraska authorities used the powerful opioid that is at the center of the U.S.'s overdose epidemic to execute a convicted murderer. Today on our show, we have Scott Sunby, professor of criminal law and author of A Life and Death Decision, A Jury Weighs the Death Penalty. Scott has also led a law school clinic advising lawyers representing death penalty cases and is a former special assistant U.S. attorney. Let's join our producer, Catherine Skip, with a full interview. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Good morning, Catherine. Hi. Can you give our listeners a quick primer on the recent history of how we ended up with lethal injection protocols? Sure. Um, and it's a fascinating history. And it's trying to answer a question, which in a way will show why it's so difficult, which is that when we try to come up with execution protocols, what we're trying to do, according to the Eighth Amendment, is find the most humane way to put another person to death. And to simply state that shows, obviously, the controversy which is going to surround it. And the way we ended up at lethal injection is we used to do things like hanging and firing squads where executions would go terribly wrong. So it was seen as becoming more humane to move to electrocutions, the electric chair, and the gas chamber, uh, where we would drop cyanide tablets in and, and basically suffocate the person to death. Um, but then during the 1980s in particular, there started to be challenges to those as being cruel and unusual because, again, executions were going terribly awry. Uh, there was one in Florida where there were photos that did not get widely distributed, but within the court they saw them of people's heads catching on fire, uh, there were reporters' descriptions in the gas chamber of people dying these ghastly uh, deaths. And so the idea was to get ahead of the Eighth Amendment that what we would do is use lethal injection and that this would be the humane, sterile, medical way of putting people to death. Um, but now, as we know, there have been things going wrong with lethal injection, and uh, that's how we ended up in this current controversy. Can prisoners still... Uh, asked to be executed in a different manner than lethal injection? It's unclear um, whether uh, someone can actually uh, consent to be executed in a less humane way. Now, a lot of states are talking about going back to firing squads, uh, electrocution, uh, and all, since those were never actually formally ruled cruel and unusual. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's going to in any way cure the problem. But whether a prisoner can say, oh, I don't want lethal injection, I want to die by firing squad or hanging, um, it's not clear that someone would have a right to ask how they should be put to death, especially if 
it's a problematic way of execution. So where are we now with with execution without violating the Eighth Amendment? So over the past 10 years or so, uh, there has been quite a development in the lethal injection area. And um, part of it is legal, um, where courts started to intervene and uh, uh, issue uh, stays on executions because the idea was that uh, prisoners were dying through these protocols, which the, the Bureau of uh, Prisons were sort of making up on the fly. It's not like the American Medical Association came up with a, oh, here's how you put someone to death uh, humanely. And in fact, under the AMA, you would violate the Hippocratic Oath if you were a doctor and participated in an execution. So this is sort of amateurs, if you will, coming up with these. And in fact, some of the drug protocols were uh, drawn off of veterinary medicine. And so we started to have very bad results, people who were not dying right away, who were not being paralyzed, because the idea usually is that you inject a, a paralytic uh, uh, drug first, and then you can uh, induce the heart attack or uh, however the other drugs are supposed to work, these cocktails as they call them. Um, and those were going wrong, and so courts were starting to issue stays and saying, I'm not sure that this isn't cruel and unusual punishment. There was a very big Supreme Court case a couple of years ago called Bayes versus Reese, where the Supreme Court basically allowed lethal injections to start again, unless a uh, condemned inmate about to be put to death can show that uh, the pain is gratuitous, that there is a, it's inducing unnecessary suffering. And clearly, the Supreme Court thought that that would sort of put an end to the controversy. But um, because so many in the medical community, especially anesthesiologists, uh, are speaking up and saying, hey, listen, you know, this is unnecessary suffering and you don't know what you're doing. Um, courts are still occasionally intervening and it's still a bit in a, a state of flux. In August, a 60-year-old inmate named Carrie Dean Moore became the first in the nation to be executed using fentanyl. What impact will the use of this potent opioid have on other death penalty states, do you think? So to understand why people are so fascinated with the Moore execution, what you have to also understand that is in addition to these legal challenges which were being made to various uh, drug protocols, uh, lethal injection protocols, there were also other movements going on. So uh, especially in Europe, anti-death penalty activists uh, were going to these big pharmaceutical companies, which are generally based in uh, Europe, and saying, we are going to protest you and try to have uh, stock fights and things like that if you don't keep your drugs from being used in these lethal in injection protocols. The drug companies not wanting bad publicity, and again, generally being Europe-based, um, started to tell the states that had bought their drugs, you cannot use these for executions. These are meant to be therapeutic drugs, not used to be putting people to death. Uh, not only are the, the activists who are protesting it, but also drug companies don't want their drug being associated with, oh, and we are the drug that is used to put people to death. Ask your doctor for a prescription, right? And so you get pharmaceutical companies basically cutting off the supply to the states. And of course, these are powerful, wealthy corporations. So they're not ones that you can easily uh, circumvent. 
And so states are now scrambling to try to find other drugs which they can use. There's a very uh, famous situation in Missouri where the Bureau of Prisons in Missouri sent people from their uh, agency across state lines with suitcases of cash to buy execution drugs from a pharmaceutical uh, company that made their own drugs uh, in another state. And it was just like drug runners, right? You know, send them over with the suitcases of cash because they can't get them on the free market. And so fentanyl, which is a, an opiate, right, um, was Nebraska's way to try to do this. And so now all the other states are, well, maybe we can use that. But of course, the manufacturers of fentanyl don't want, they already have a bad enough PR problem with opiate abuse and, and uh, deaths. The last thing they want is to be known as, oh, and we are the ones who are used for executions. So the fentanyl, fentanyl uh, manufacturers are now fighting uh, against having their uh, drugs used. I've also heard actually a concern within the medical community, because there are legitimate uses for opiates, that this may lead to a drying up of the availability of this very powerful painkiller, which is its legitimate use, right? And um, that, you know, patients who need it may not be able to get it because the manufacturers may be cutting off the supplies if it's being used in this way. Um, so <laughs> Nebraska is just the latest, Catherine, in the effort of states to try to keep ahead of the curve as the pharmaceutical companies cut off their supplies, as the courts start to say, well, this doesn't uh, qualify under the Eighth Amendment. Um, and they really are scrambling. Uh, some are talking about using nitrous oxide. Um, others are talking about going back to firing squads, going back to the old ways, which were never formally ruled cruel and unusual, uh, but were on the cusp of being uh, ruled that way. And so the states are in a real bind. It's this, it's this huge scramble to find the drugs or the means to put these people uh, to death without violating the Eighth Amendment. And it's not clear that it's going to work. It seems like the death penalty is being fought on, on so many fronts. You have the anti-death penalty groups that are battling the courts to end the practice for once and all. You have the drug companies filing to stop the use of, of their drugs and executions like we just discussed. And now you have the Catholic Church declaring the death penalty wrong in all cases. Does this really spell the end for the death penalty? So as you can imagine, uh, there's great speculation this way, right? And it's one reason why so much attention was being paid to the Supreme Court appointments uh, over the last uh, few years, because obviously one way the death penalty could be found uh, or end is through the Supreme Court ruling it unconstitutional. That seems less likely now. But what you point to is really important because it really is a grassroots movement against the death penalty. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that the number of death sentences imposed, forget executions for the moment, the number of death sentences imposed each year has fallen dramatically, over 90% since the mid-1990s, to where the last few years were right around in the 20s and 30s, nationwide as to the number of death sentences are, which are being imposed. And even out of those sentences, uh, a significant percentage are out of California, which has the largest death row in the country. And the reason it has the largest death row is because they never execute. So those death sentences really are more life without parole plus sentences, if you will, 
um, in that it's very unlikely that uh, someone in California will ever be executed. So we're really talking probably in the teens, the number of death sentences each year. And yet, this is a remarkably expensive system in order to be able to have death penalty trials, let alone to carry out executions. And so there's huge financial pressures coming on states to not pursue the death penalty in cases where 10 years ago, a prosecutor would have definitely sought the death penalty. And juries are not returning death sentences at the rates that they used to. Um, And so we are at a very uh, interesting crossroads where many people are saying, well, it's just going to burn out on its own. Those who perhaps are less optimistic about that, if you want the death penalty to go away, um, point out that at the late 1960s, it looked like the death penalty was on its way out as well. Death sentences had dwindled to a handful like it has today. Um, For the first time, I think it was in 1968, a Gallup poll found that more Americans opposed the death penalty than supported it. Um, It really looked like it was on its way out. Uh, Major states had imposed moratoriums. um, And it went up to the Supreme Court. And as you may know, in 1972, the Supreme Court actually ruled the death penalty as it was being administered unconstitutional. But it left the door cracked open for the death penalty to come back. And and you can try to come up with a constitutional system. We don't know what that looked like, but the current one isn't. And in the next four years, Catherine, this is hard uh, to believe, but in the next four years, um, uh, 37 states and Congress passed new death penalty statutes. So there was, whether it was a backlash to the Supreme Court, you know, and the states saying, you can't tell us we can't have a death penalty, whether in fact uh, there was a sense that we, you know, need the death penalty uh, is really hard to tell. Um, But we've been at this point before and it went the other way, right? Um, The other thing that I think is out there that we just don't know is what I always call the Timothy McVeigh factor, which is that you get a high profile crime like Timothy McVeigh blowing up the Oklahoma City federal building, killing all these little children and all, where there's a sense we need the death penalty for the worst of the worst. Now, that's not how the system actually is working, but that's the, you know, that's where a lot of people support the death penalty. Well, what about Osama bin Laden? What about Timothy McVeigh? Uh, In fact, I remember seeing a Gallup poll, I think it was, or some type of poll before Timothy McVeigh was executed and how many people favored it, and it was well over 80%. And what was interesting is there was like 10% that said, well, I'm actually opposed to the death penalty, but I make an exception for Timothy McVeigh, right? And so there's this, this sense of not wanting to let the death penalty go because there is going to be a truly evil person who's going to be uh, do something truly uh, uh, horrendous, and we need the death penalty for that person. So it's sort of the you know unwillingness to to let it go, uh, which is a very American phenomenon, but it is something that uh, may help explain why, even despite all these factors you identified and why death sentences are at a uh, all-time low uh, since it was reinstituted uh, in the 1970s. I cannot with confidence say that the death penalty is going away. There's a fair chance, but I, I certainly would not uh, wager my retirement fund on it, as meager as that may be. Just to introduce another little quirk to that, of the the handful of people who are still being executed, 
what percentage of those are volunteering for execution? Um, it's there are always some volunteers, um, and that, of course, is a concern in itself. It, it's a fascinating ethical issue as to what capital defense attorneys should do, where you have a client who says they want to be executed. Are you supposed to help your client satisfy their wishes, or are you supposed to oppose it? Um, but quite apart from that, there's also the issue of if someone is asking for this, uh, there often are very uh, strong mental health issues uh, uh, in the background, right? Uh, and the uh, level of mental illness on death rows is staggering and, and, and distressing. Uh, it's also an issue with solitary confinement generally. Um, but in, in terms of the volunteers, it's a very small percentage um, but it is something that sort of keeps the system hobbling along because you will have some people who want to waive their appeals. And the Supreme Court, is, uh, in a case a fair number of years ago now, said that basically you, you cannot uh, intervene on behalf of a death row inmate who wants to be executed. Um, if he or she does not want to take an appeal, you can't make them take it. Hmm, interesting. So where do you think we're going to be in 10 years with capital punishment? So I think that there is a chance that the death penalty will go away largely through attrition. Um, but my guess is 10 years from now, we're still going to have a handful of states. We may still have a fair number of states, like 20, that have death penalty statutes. But I'm guessing we'll have only a handful of states, Florida probably being one of them, where prosecutors are still seeking the death penalty with any type of regularity. Um, but again, if people realize how expensive it is, not just a death penalty trial, which are you know, often in the millions of dollars compared uh, to you know, a non-death penalty case where the same murder, if tried, where life without parole would be the sentence, uh, would be you know, a quarter of the cost. Uh, you also have all the things that go with training of judges, training of lawyers, um, you know, special uh, execution chambers, special death rows, where the cost is staggering. If you translated that into the number of firefighters we could have, police officers, teachers, if people start to really understand how expensive it is, especially when you're getting maybe two or three death sentences a year for a state, um, that may be enough to bring an end to it. And, and there are definitely many fiscal conservatives in legislatures that oppose the death penalty and have actually tried to abolish the death penalty uh, because they are offended by the cost, especially given that the default sentence now is life without parole. These are not individuals who are going to be getting back out on the street. They are going to die in prison. And once you accept that, support for the death penalty drops dramatically. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Explainer. We hope you'll subscribe and comment and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Next week, we will be with Teresa Vergas, director of Miami Law's Investor Rights Clinic, discussing how Tesla and SpaceX founder Elon Musk's bizarre behavior is roiling financial markets. And that's all for this episode of The Explainer. Let us know what and whom you'd like to hear from at Miami Law on future shows. I'm your host, Annette Uguez, and we'll be back with you soon with another episode featuring legal news you can sink your ears into. 
This week's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Entertainment, Arts, and Sports Law LLM, the only graduate degree of its kind. The concentration focuses on areas of law that in today's world are expanding, converging, and at times intersecting. To learn more, go to www.law.miami.edu and search for EASL.